This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I am Scott Radley in for Rick Zamperin today, and we are going to start out today by talking to Penn of Penn & Teller. Yes, the magicians, comedians, performers, debunkers, all that stuff. Uh, they're going to be in this area soon. We're going to be talking to Penn Gillette. We're also going to be chatting about health and uh, heart and brain stroke health. A lot of people, a lot of stuff people don't know that they really need to. There are new sports that are going to be showing up in the 2028 Olympics. We'll get into those. Some surprising, some really surprising. Mental health impacts on small business. There's a new report out about that. It is having a big impact. We'll talk about the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Remember that one? Some strange behavior, it seems, by the RCMP in this one. We'll get into that with Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch. Spending is apparently going to be down on Christmas gifts this year. We'll see about that. Lots of other stuff, too, all coming up. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. On November 18, my next guest and his partner, you will know them by name, are going to be at the OLG stage at Fallsview Casino. He is not just a great magician, although he is that, but he's also someone who... Uh, over the years, especially recently, has made magic, I think, very accessible, which is something not everybody does. His name is Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller. Joins us now. Penn, how are you? Doing very well, thank you. How are you? Excellent. Really appreciate you joining us because, as I say, not only are you obviously great at what you do, you've made a huge career out of this, but you have, I think, as I say, made magic more accessible and fresh especially with you know stuff you've done how do you do that how everybody has seen so many tricks now and so much of this stuff gets i don't want to say repetitive but maybe that's the right word how do you keep magic fresh and so it's not the same thing people are seeing well i i I don't think you can do that externally i don't think you can decide to make something fresh you have to just uh get ideas that seem you know beautiful and interesting and then do those as far as making it more accessible you know on our on our tv show fool us uh we go to a great deal of trouble to get as 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 i mean we tell the producers to we obviously have nothing to do with the booking or it wouldn't be a valid show but uh to get a wide range of people um on the show so you get people of uh people that don't just look like me, which is what magic used to be. But that is broadening out thanks to the internet and thanks uh, uh, a little bit to our show, but thanks also to the fact that uh, how to do magic is more available. And mm. you'll talk to many magicians who will think that's a bad thing, and I think that's a really, really good thing. Why? Uh, because, well, because when, when an art form, when the... Um, when the techniques of an art form are are kept in an in-group, uh, it, it doesn't allow that form to, uh, to flourish. Uh, you don't want to uh, have Chuck Berry come out and then have <laughs> no one else be able to get a guitar. You yeah. know, you don't want to limit that. And Magic did that for years in horrible ways. I mean, the Magic Circle, one of the most famous magic clubs in the yes, world, which yes. incidentally will, will not let us in, uh, for this, for this very philosophical position. Um, they wouldn't allow women in until the nineties. 
Roll that around in your head. Mm. They did not allow women into their stupid little club uh, until the 90s. And it used to be that, and many magicians love this, that uh, if you wanted to learn how to do magic, if that was an idea that thrilled you, you had to go into a a room full of middle-aged men in a magic club. Mm. And um, whether whether there was misogyny there or not, uh, at least conscious misogyny there or not, that was not a place that many people felt welcome. Um, and now you can have a, you know, 16-year-old girl, identifies as girl, who um, is fascinated by magic and doesn't have any friends who know about magic, and she can go on the internet and with a little bit of searching, look up a pen and teller trick and not only see the pen and teller trick, but also find out how it's done. And maybe that inspires her to do something beautiful herself. And I think if, if you think that all magic is, is the secrets, you're insulting magicians tremendously. Mm. It's like saying that you can, you can take Bob Dylan and write down the words and write down the notes and you have a performance. Yeah. Does it also, when, when people can see behind the curtain a little bit, does it also force those who are in the business doing it seriously to up their game and have to be even better? Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, the antelope becomes faster because of the cheetah, I suppose, but I don't like to see it as, uh, as competitive, you know, um, Art forms are not supposed to be competitive. That's sports, and I hate sports. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've never seen a sporting event all the way through. That's how much I dislike sports. Um, uh, uh, I've never seen a football game. You know, uh, I don't like it. I don't like the idea of people trying to stop other people from doing things, even symbolically. Uh, so uh, the idea that... Uh, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld once said to me that he didn't like magic because all magic was, here's a quarter, now it's gone, you're a jerk, now it's back, you're an idiot, show's <laughs> over. And uh, one of the reasons I hated magic, and I was the biggest magic hater there was in high school uh, before I met Teller, was that magic seemed to have an adversarial position on it, you know, Um I'm smart. You're not because I can get yeah. it. You aren't. Yeah. Okay. Keith Richards. Keith Richards on the bottom of the stage and goes, "Ha ha ha! I can play guitar and you can't." I mean, maybe Eddie Van Halen did, but that's a special example. Um, uh, I uh, I think that it has to be if you're working in the arts, you can't be saying uh, you're excluded from this. Even the freak show elements. I'm different from you. Um, don't have to be exclusive. They can be inclusive by saying this is part of a humanity that we share. So I think that the, that the peak behind the curtain just makes magic more the singer, not the song. And that is an incredibly important part of art. Interesting. We got, we only have 30 seconds left. I wish we had a lot more time. Oh, geez. I know. I know. No, it's, (laughs) but I mean, because you've done fool us and because you've done this kind of thing, because you've opened the door a little bit, is there still the, uh, when you're on TV, sometimes someone will fool you and you, it seems anyway, and you will show the reaction of, wow, that was amazing. Are you, we love that. 
Are you still able to be wowed? Yes. Well, you know, uh, I want to say strongly that we're not lying on Fool Us. We have never claimed to be fooled and we weren't. Um, That is all completely true. And the reason you get into magic is not because you want to fool people. It's rather because you enjoy the feeling of being fooled. Because at the beginning, you can't fool people. And that chasing that first high becomes difficult in magic. And we are fortunate that we have millions of dollars in the whole team that search the whole world to find the best magicians who can give us that experience. And there's no better feeling than seeing uh, the impossible happen artistically. It's, it's beautiful. It is. Yesterday on the show, we were, yesterday on the show, we were talking about why people like to be scared as we're getting close to Halloween. And we had a psychologist talk about that. There's something equal about why we love to be fooled if it's in a beautiful, surprising way like magic. And clearly we do. And that's, uh, that's what makes it so special. Uh, Pendulette and his partner, Teller Penn and Teller will be at the OLG stage at Falls View Casino Saturday, November 18. You can get tickets. You can go see him and you can be fooled in the most beautiful way possible. Uh, listen, really appreciate you coming on and doing this. Thanks so much. What a pleasure talking. Thanks a lot. Have a great one. You too. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. How much do you know, do you think, about heart and stroke issues? If if something was to be happening to one of your loved ones who was near you or to you yourself, do you think you would recognize what's going on and know what to do? Well, the Heart and Stroke Foundation has revealed many Canadians don't know enough about this, and it is putting them and their friends and family and loved ones at risk. Leslie James is the Director of Health Policy and Systems uh, with the Heart and Stroke Foundation. She joins us now. Thanks for this. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you doing this because uh, clearly this is one of these things that we may not really think about or pay any attention to until someone is needing it. And then all of a sudden we're saying, wait a sec, why was I not listening or reading or watching that last time someone told me what was going on? Well, what, what is the thing or things that you're finding that people really don't know that probably they should? And maybe it's a long list, but what are the, what are the, app, the missing things that people don't know about? Well, that's a really, a really great question. And thank you for answering that or for asking that. Um, about half of Canadians have been touched by heart disease and stroke. And although the death rate has declined over the past 70 years, Heart disease and stroke are still the second leading cause of death in Canada. And there's still, based on our poll, much that we need to do and educate Canadians about the signs and symptoms, about prevention, and what to do in an emergency. Um, so we're here to talk about that uh, today and uh, happy to to raise awareness. So about 3.5 million Canadians are living with heart disease and stroke right now. Um and unfortunately, not enough people understand the signs and symptoms. Okay, so um, I think, uh, you know, the signs and symptoms, if there is something totally obvious, I think people, would you agree, probably recognize that? If, if someone is clutching at their chest because they're in excruciating pain, they probably guess, oh, there's something wrong with their heart. Or, you know, as we've seen on TV commercials or whatever, if you see someone who... Uh, is suddenly not themselves and their face is sagging or whatever. The, people might estimate or guess, hey, that's a stroke. But there are there are things before those enormous signs, correct? So those yeah. it isn't always that obvious. 
So I'm really glad that you pointed out the, the clutching at the chest because that is what we call, we call the typical Hollywood heart attack. And not all heart attacks look like that. And in fact, women's heart attacks often don't look like that. So women can experience chest pain, but not the point where they're clutching at their chest. Uh, they might have some discomfort, shortness of breath, uh, pressure or pain kind of in the, the lower chest or abdomen area dizziness, back pressure, um, and a lot of fatigue. And about half of these women who experience these symptoms, their heart attack symptoms go unrecognized. Uh, so it's really important that we understand that women and men will experience different um, signs of a heart attack and that women are aware of what a heart attack might look like if they were to, to have one. Okay. The problem or not the problem, the challenge, I guess, with that is all those symptoms that you just said w could be symptomatic of something totally unrelated or something totally mild. So how do you know when it's just my back is sore, my abdomen is sore, I've got a tummy ache or whatever compared to I'm having a heart attack? Well, these in combination would be a bad sign. Um, and if you're experiencing any of these, it's time to call 911 and get yourself uh, assessed. Um, and especially with uh, a stroke too. So you, you mentioned having a stroke. But a third of Canadians don't think that they're able to tell the signs of a stroke without having some type of advanced medical training. And that is totally untrue. Um, we have the the FAST acronym. So FAST stands for F is your uh, face, is your face. Um, droopy, you're saying. Yeah, having a, yeah. yeah, sorry, drooping. Uh, a is you're able to raise your arms. S is for speech. Is it slurred? Uh, and if you have these symptoms, T, it's time to call 911 right away. So these types of things, people are able to engage in, and use these um, tools to assess whether someone is having a stroke. And it's important that if you are having a stroke or see somebody who is, to call 911 right away to get yourself to the nearest stroke center in Ontario. Not every hospital is equipped to treat a stroke, but EMS is able to um, take you to the right hospital. And and just one time, and I know this has been covered a million times, and I don't even know if you can speak to this, but we, we always hear about the um, uh, having an aspirin in your purse or in your pocket or something to, to chew on in the event of this. Is, is that legit? Is that And, and explain what that is. What, what is the story behind that so people know exactly? I'm not a medical professional. I have a doctorate in public health, so I can't be giving clinical advice. Okay. Um, but what I can say is speak to your doctor to know if that's the right approach for you. Um, there's different uh, evidence that has come out around that recently. But again, it's it's up to you and your health professional to make those decisions. That is Leslie James. She is the Director of Health Policy and Systems at the Heart and Stroke Foundation. We appreciate you taking a few minutes this morning. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When 2028 rolls around... And the Olympics land in Los Angeles. There will be new sports. There's always new sports. The, each, each Olympics brings us usually some kind of new sports. But this one, it's an interesting group of sports that are going to be added in 2028. Baseball and softball, they're, they're coming back. They're not really new. They've been there before. They've come, they've gone, they've come, they've gone. They're back. Makes sense. It's in the States. 
And baseball really is, if you look at the World Cup of Baseball or the whatever you call it, it's, it's growing significantly around the world. Flag football, interesting one. Flag football is going to be there. That would seem to be a uh, pretty good guarantee of a medal for the States. You'd think a bunch of retired NFL players, recently retired NFL players, all of a sudden now wanting to have an Olympic experience. I would put my money on them. Squash will be in. Mm, Not a huge sport around here unless you go to the local squash club. But sure, I mean, makes sense. But the two that are really interesting, really interesting, because I never saw these coming, although one of them I, I shouldn't have, I don't think. One of them I absolutely should have. Lacrosse is being brought in. Canada should be in great shape for that. The other one, cricket. Let me bring in Les Carpenter. He's a sports reporter with the Washington Post. Joins us now. Les, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. How are you today? I am I am fantastic, thank you. And I, you know, I, uh, We'll get to lacrosse in just a second. The cricket one, boy, I can't believe. I know cricket was a sport in the 1900 Olympics, I believe. Considering when you look at what are the biggest viewed sports events in the world every year, including just this week or last week, India was playing Pakistan and there were over a billion viewers. I can't believe the IOC has not brought in cricket long before now. Well, there's a lot of reasons. It was hard to find a way to fit cricket in. I mean, the cricket that most people think of, uh, certainly going back over the decades, is something that takes either days or a day. Uh, so it's not exactly something that you're you can think oh we'll, we'll easily put that in the Olympics. I, I do think though that once they came up with this new form called 2020, in which you basically could play cricket in three hours, that changed the game for for everyone. And that's only been around really on a on a large scale for only a couple decades now, and even less than that. So you know it takes time to kind of fit these things together and make them work, but. Once they call it T20, basically 2020, uh, once T20 cricket took off, uh, yeah, it, it made a lot of sense. And the other thing that's big is the IOC desperately wants to get into the India market. There's just so much money there now. It's such a big economy. It's now the biggest country in the world. Uh, so they've been looking for a way to get into India and India really has no great Olympic history and likewise, I think India is really interested in hosting an Olympics. So there's kind of that marriage there as well. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned about the, the history there. The United States, over the entirety of the Olympics, has 2,629 summer Olympic medals alone. India, with a much, much, much bigger population, has 35. So you're right. There's not, and medals don't count for everything. I mean, the viewership is different from that, but you're absolutely right. This, this is something that clearly you are going to be appealing to an enormous market that will absolutely now, based on past numbers, be very interested in this particular sport. Well, and it's amazing when you think of just the excitement in India, for instance, this, uh, ironically enough, and generally with these things, you know, there's no accidents. The IOC was holding it. Uh, it has a big meeting every couple of years and where they, all the members come and vote on all the big things, which is why this is coming up now. Uh, this meeting where the L.A. program was voted on was in Mumbai. And, you know, when they had the press conferences after, it was just one reporter after another from India just asking all sorts of questions about cricket. Everyone there is very, very excited. And there's a lot of there's a lot of money, a lot of powerful money, a lot of big corporate money in the U.S. uh, that has come from India. A lot of CEOs are from India or have, you know, have some kind of 
you know, ties to India. And so, and they're very vocal. I mean, there are a lot of very powerful, wealthy people that have been pushing for this. The other side, the flip side. So that one, I mean, whether it was now or at some point, that makes so much sense for all the reasons you just laid out. That makes so much sense that cricket is going to be in the Olympics. The one I did not see coming and maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't have is lacrosse. Um, I was joking an hour or so ago earlier that anytime the Olympics brings in a new sport or very often Canada does really well right off the bat and snowboarding or synchronized swimming, all these things when they first come in, we're going to do really well, I would think in (laughs) lacrosse, but is there a worldwide market? And I don't mean viewing even, are there going to be more than a handful of countries that can be competitive in lacrosse right now? Well, you could kind of say that with all these sports. I mean, how many countries you know are going to be competitive in cricket? Uh, how many countries are going to be competitive in uh, flag football? Uh, you know, lacrosse, the True. same thing. Yeah, there there are more countries than you think that play lacrosse and play it at a high level. Uh, and then you also have the very interesting, you know, sort of uh, you know dynamic of where you're going to have. Uh, what was once known as the Iroquois Nation uh, coming in as well that, that you know that competes as a nation, Native Americans that, that kind of are a little bit in Canada and obviously uh, upstate New York and Pennsylvania that compete as a country as well. Uh, will the IOC allow that? I think it's just going to be such a great story. They will. Uh, but that is something to kind of watch for. I, you know, lacrosse had a very, uh, how would I put it? They People who put lacrosse together, the 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 worldwide federation, the people who were pushing this for the Olympics, were very well organized, and they had a lot of Olympic veterans. So they had a lot of people who knew how to navigate the system, and I think that really helped for lacrosse as well. Sometimes when you you get these sports and they don't have great organizations at the top, uh, lacrosse really really did. You know, flag football was backed by the NFL, cricket was backed by the big money interests in in India and the Indian league there, uh, you know, there was a lot of other things, you know, and the, and the worldwide cricket federation is also very well organized. I mean, some of these sports really can get into the Olympics because their leadership is really good at getting mm. them into the Olympics. One of the things we know about the Olympics is uh, the IOC does not dislike celebrity. They they have quite enjoyed having the NBA is involved in, involved in the basketball, and when it's been there, the NHL involved. Uh, you mentioned the NFL being involved behind flag football. Would you anticipate that we are going to see a bunch of probably former, but NFL names playing on a team, especially for the States? Potentially, yeah. I think there's a lot of interest in that. I think with all these sports, LA itself, the when I mean LA, I mean the LA Olympic Organizing yes. Committee, is going to want as many big names as possible. All this now is about selling sponsorships, selling advertising, uh, you know, the Olympic model is has kind of boomed really after after the failure in Montreal in 76. So figure, you know, these Olympics need to figure out how do you make money each time? And especially in the Western world, uh, you know, Olympics in America and, and Canada, other places in Europe, uh, they really need to rely heavily on selling sponsorships. And the IOC really needs to rely heavily on kind of how you have these money streams and by bringing in the NFL, which is the most the most lucrative and you could argue the most powerful sports league in the world, uh, you're doing that. With cricket, you're bringing in that. I mean, so I think a lot of what you're seeing with the Olympics now is going to be heavily star-driven and I think it's going to be heavily organized behind big, big sports leagues because they can make those things happen. They can bring in the advertisers. They can bring in the money. And 
in a lot of ways, some of these new sports that you're seeing here, baseball, I would consider that as well, are heavily driven by professional sports leagues and big money and potential star power. Don't go to sleep on the idea that maybe baseball will be able to bring in major mm. league players for 2028. I know LA is working very hard on that. Whether that, you know, the Major League Baseball will eventually and, and the Players Union will agree to that, I don't know. We'll see. But that's something we'll they're definitely sure. trying to do. Les Carpenter with the Washington Post. Thanks for doing this this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I don't think anybody listening is going to be shocked by the suggestion that the pandemic and all the effects that it had affected a lot of people's mental health, that we know, and that those who operated businesses, especially small businesses, were really right in the bullseye of that because, boy, you you couldn't have people coming to work. People were doing all their shopping online and they were just trying, people who own these businesses were just trying to get by, but there were so many obstacles and things thrown in their way. Well, a report from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce is now referring to the echo pandemic. This is the mental health fallout at the end of the pandemic that still exists. Andrea Carmona is the manager of public affairs with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce joins us now. Andrea, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm good, Scott. Thank you so much for having me and for shining a light on this important issue. Well, it, uh, thank you for coming on. And, and I don't know that if we sat here, and I mean, obviously you have and the Chamber has, but for the rest of us, I don't know that if we gave it five minutes thought that we would be shocked by any of what the report is saying, that this was an incredibly difficult time and that doesn't just immediately vanish when things get back to normal. Exactly. And so, you know, as you said, what we saw was with the COVID-19 pandemic, we really saw this intensification of mental health challenges. And that was especially pronounced for frontline workers, for marginalized communities and small and medium sized businesses. What we see in this report is what experts are terming as this echo pandemic is really a sign that that surge in demand for mental health services during the pandemic never really went away. Um, And so now we're dealing with a reality where, you know, SMEs, uh, small to medium-sized businesses, are juggling economic recovery while also juggling the declining mental health of their employees, but also their communities. Um, And with, you know, increasing wait lists to access mental health services in the healthcare system, this problem is further compounded. And one of the words, as I was reading through the report, that comes up very often, I mean, there's, look, there's all kinds of different parts of mental health, but the word anxiety appears a bunch. And I, I mean, certainly if you were someone who invested your life savings in starting a small business and you were having to keep it going through all that was happening, I can, if you're going to pick one diagnosis that I would guess would have come up an awful lot, I would, anxiety is exactly what I would have expected would have been that one. Exactly. And I, I mean, mental health certainly on a spectrum. Um, there's, you know, all the way from things like anxiety to mental health disorders. Um, but when we were talking to small businesses, what we heard from them was, you know, there's a lot of excitement when you're a small business owner and you start your business with a lot of enthusiasm and passion. And then this sort of like day-to-day stress kind of starts to set in. And with the pandemic, that was exacerbated. Um, with business owners really struggling 
uh, with some really heavy responsibilities um, and a very rapidly shifting situation, but with a reduced capacity to really respond to it. So they're sort of on the front lines of a crisis that they're kind of ill-equipped to, mm. to handle. One of the other, one of the things, not one of the other things, there's a lot of things in this report, but one of the things <laughs> it points out is that um, not a whole lot of small businesses have a comprehensive mental health strategy, either for the boss or the owner or for the employees. And that sounds on first blush, like you're saying, well, okay, uh, that doesn't sound responsible. On the other hand, then you think, okay, but we're coming through a pandemic when in a lot of cases, these owners, the, the staff couldn't come in or wouldn't come in. They lost staff. They had to cut back on staff. These owners were keeping the whole thing running themselves. They were doing so much of the work. Well, of course, there's no mental health strategy because they had no time to do anything except just keep the doors open. Exactly. I mean, unfortunately, during times of crisis, we know that the urgent trumps the important. And when it comes to um, this action gap is what we refer to it as in the, in the report, where a lot of business owners um, and SMEs do understand and recognize the importance of mental health investments, and they want to support their employees to their best of their abilities. But because of capacity constraints, they're having a really hard time doing that in an actionable way. And so what this report actually does is it does provide a number of tools and resources for those businesses to start looking at how they can really improve those outcomes within their own businesses. There is, um, there's a spinoff of this, I would think, and that is that even if you do have a plan or if you don't, you still had to deal with, there will be employees as, as is captured in this report, there will be employees who are dealing with mental health issues who could not come to work, may have been off long-term. Again, if you are a small business owner, this puts you in an interesting, and I don't mean that in a good way position, because you may have to then go and hire someone else to come and work for you, but then the person who was off may decide that they are now capable of, or the doctor decides they're capable of coming back and you can't afford to keep all these employees on. It's a really tough spot to figure out what to do now with the employee you've hired, who's come in and helped you at an important time, but you don't want to show disrespect to the person who wants to come back. It's, it's not an easy situation to be in. That's certainly true. Um, I think what's, what's more important here is ensuring that we have a system of resources and a healthcare system that is able to meet the needs of those that need them the most so that if employers are unable to, you know, meet a need because the person really needs specialized care, that there's a system there that's in place to be able to deliver that and that has the capacity to deliver that, Scott. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is a healthcare system that was already burdened uh, by the pandemic that is facing an additional burden because of this rise of mental health challenges. So it's something that really needs special attention. Uh, the report, people can find the report. Uh, it's the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. It's called Mind the Gap. And particularly if you have a small or medium-sized business, you probably want to read through this. It's uh, It'll take a little time to get through. It's not a short report. It's a, it's a pretty hefty report, but it's, uh, it's worth your time to look at it. Uh, that was uh, Andrew, Andrea Carmona, the Public Affairs Director Manager with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police declined to pursue a criminal investigation into Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's actions during the SNC-Lavalin affair in part 
because the federal police force was thwarted in a bid to get confidential cabinet materials, newly released documents show. Absent those, the records show, the RCMP reviewed all publicly available materials, conducted a handful of interviews before it ultimately came to the conclusion there wasn't enough evidence to pursue a criminal probe. Is this really what we do now? That if people won't hand over evidence, that the police simply say, well, I guess we can't do anything. I thought police had all kinds of powers to get evidence from places where average people couldn't to determine whether crimes had been committed or not. Uh, This information comes from Democracy Watch. The founder of that is Duff Conacher, who joins us now. Duff, how are you this morning? I'm well. Other than this situation, I'm good. This this truly is one of the more bizarre explanations for a police investigation. I don't know whether a crime was committed with SNC-Lavalin. I don't, and I'm not alleging that one is. But this whole story does not exactly imbue me with a great sense of confidence that the RCMP does either. No, the situation raises a lot of serious questions, and Democracy Watch is calling for a public inquiry. Uh, to answer those questions because the RCMP essentially rolled over like a negligently weak lapdog and did a very superficial investigation, didn't try to obtain key secret cabinet communication records, as you mentioned. And, and they also, the top officers tried to bury the investigation with an almost two-year delay. So the question is why and who made the decisions? And was there any communications with anyone in the Trudeau cabinet about this, which would be very improper and and even smellier than the situation already is. I, as I say, my understanding, and maybe I've just watched too many police shows, I don't know, but my understanding is that police have tools at their disposal to have access to evidence, evidence that we wouldn't normally get. And some evidence, even if you go in court, some evidence is not always open if it has some particular reason of absolute security. But that never that I ever hear about suggested investigators of, in the FBI down in the States or whatever, it's never, well, we, they wouldn't open the evidence to us. Therefore, we just are going to pretend it, it doesn't exist. That's bizarre. It is. And when you compare it to uh, the Greenbelt scandal situation with the Ford government, Uh, In that situation, the RCMP uh, received a referral from the OPP because the OPP felt there was a perceived conflict of interest, I think, given that the uh, Premier Ford appoints the commissioner uh, of the OPP, the head of the OPP. Uh, The RCMP should have done the same thing, should have referred it to the OPP in this situation because the Trudeau cabinet appoints the head of the RCMP. They didn't do that. In the Greenbelt situation, after receiving it, from the the referral from the OPP. A month and a half later, the RCMP publicly announces an investigation. What happened in the SNC-Lavalin scandal situation with the Trudeau cabinet? The RCMP always claimed that they were just assessing the situation, not investigating. They were actually investigating, just doing a very superficial investigation. Between August 2019 and June 2023, the RCMP said nothing about the situation. So we have a a almost four-year period goes by with radio silence in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. With the Greenbelt, within a month and a half, they're announcing publicly an investigation. Mm. Presumably, the RCMP uh, is now going to, in the Greenbelt investigation, use its powers to apply to court and try and get a search warrant to get all the communication records 
for everyone involved in the Greenbelt decisions, because that's the only way to determine what actually happened. What happened at the federal level? For four years, two of which was just a delay by top op- officers, the RCMP never even went to court to see whether a judge would give them a search warrant for the cabinet communication records. It's it's just bizarre. It's really smelly, and we need a public inquiry into how this happened and why it happened. Okay, so if I'm Joe Public and the RCMP decides to start investigating me and I refuse to hand over something they demand or, frankly, destroy it or whatever else, emails or whatever else, could I not argue the exact same thing that the government argued here that, look, the, I don't have to I don't have to give the RCMP this stuff. And if the RCMP were then to push and say, no, you do, would it not be ex- exposing itself as having not done the work it was supposed to have done? I just, I, it seems that this opens the door to other people simply doing the same thing. Yeah, the cabinet uh, refused to disclose records that they call cabinet confidences. It's an exemption, a secrecy exemption in the uh, Federal Access to Information Act, which has so many secrecy loopholes. It really should be called the Guide to Hiding Information from the Public that they have a right to know act. And, uh, you know, lots of times this exemption is abused by governments. It's been shown through history. They claim it's a cabinet confidence. Uh, It has to be kept secret. And then someone reviews it like a court and they find that, no, actually, you were just hiding a bunch of information you didn't want the public to know. Uh, So for the RCMP to just accept that and not try, even try to go to court and see whether a judge would give them a search warrant is just rolling over like a negligently weak lapdog. And uh, it, again, raises a lot of questions. Um, cabinet confidences are not necessarily exempt in a criminal investigation situation and cannot necessarily be kept secret, especially if you need those communication records to determine whether the cabinet's claims that they were trying to stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin for good reasons, uh, not for political reasons or not to help out the company and give it preferential treatment, uh, or whether it was true with the attorney general uh, said, Jody Wilson-Raybould, that she was pressured to stop the prosecution for the wrong reasons. And, and, yeah, and, and, and we... Trudeau was found guilty by the Ethics Commissioner violating the federal government ethics law for uh, pressuring the Attorney General. So it was clearly wrongful in that way. Did it cross the criminal line? Well, you need the communication records to know. So you try and get a search warrant to get them, unless you're a negligently weak lapdog, which is what the RCMP is in this situation. And we got to run, but you know the the irony of this, and I, I say this all the time because I and I, and I agree with this uh, every time I say it, is that those who are saying, "Oh, come on, lay off," it's you know, uh, who may be supporters of this government. I am very, very positive if a new government holding a different political stripe were to do the exact same thing, those people would be saying, wait a second, how are they hiding? Why are you not investigating? This is not about politics. This is not about which party you support. This to me is about this, this kind of thing. Uh, I would expect more from our, our, our national police force. I just, this just sounds ridiculous. But anyway, I wish we had a lot more time. Uh, Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this stuff. Thank you. I'll keep you updated. The, the RCMP is still hiding more than 2,200 pages of records. So we're still chasing We'll be talking those. again. We updated. will be talking again. That is Duff Conacher. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast.
from 900 CHML. 60 or less shopping days until Christmas. How much are you planning to spend? I, I noticed that I was at, um, I won't say what it's what store it was. It rhymes with Mostco. <laughs> and they've had their Christmas stuff up for weeks now. Before we even got into Halloween stuff, the Christmas stuff was up. There is no doubt that companies want you to spend money on Christmas gifts. Big money is made for this. But a new report out suggests that people say, I don't know if they mean it, but they say they will be spending less this Christmas season. Marty Weintraub is the partner with Na- and ra- National Retail Leader at Deloitte Canada. Join us now. Marty, how are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am excellent. Thanks for doing this. I am. Um, I, I was laughing when I saw your report. Not that it's not a good report, but the fact that people say they're going to spend less at Christmas. I think we've heard this before, and then almost every year at the end, we have the story two weeks after Christmas with everyone saying, "I don't know what happened to my Visa card. It's just out of control. I just I, I couldn't stop spending." I, I think the best intentions may be there. I just don't know if people actually will spend less this Christmas. Yeah, it, it's a good question, and I do get asked that a lot because we've been doing this study now. Uh, this is our fifth year. What I can, what I can tell you is, uh, my takeaway would be is the actual percentage. So in this case, obviously, it's about eleven percent. That's over a pretty challenging year last year as well. If, if you look back at our report from last year, it's pretty hard to go back and obviously reconcile exactly what they say versus what they do. But I can tell you that within a few percentage points, it's directionally correct. Meaning, if spending oh. is down. You know, whether it's 11% at the end or 7 or 8 or 10 or 12, I would say it's likely trending down versus trending up. There'll be some exceptions to that with certain retailers and certain hot hot items. But I think in general, and especially this year, I mean, you've seen it play out publicly. There's just not a lot of money left after rent, food, etc. Well, that you're absolutely right there because whether the intent is to spend as much as before or not or whatever... If you don't have the money, you don't have the money. And a lot of people right now, you're absolutely right. This is a struggle, this time to get everything paid for. 100%. And, you know, some of the uh, outtakes of the report, again, irrespective of uh, the percentage drop, you know, about half the Canadians told us that they're basically going to focus on what their families need this season and likely will buy fewer gifts for fewer people. Again, really being, I would say, strategic about how they shell out their precious money. There's a number of things in here that are really interesting as far as numbers of where people are identifying the cuts that they're going to make. But when they also, they're not just talking about gifts that they're going to give, they're looking at things around holidays that maybe you would think to spend on for yourself. 30% are identifying, or there's a 30% drop in anticipated travel spending. That's really interesting to me because, you know, we, we seem to be in a world right now where it's about experiences. People talk a lot about experiences. And so I may not want a new stereo or a new TV, but I want the experience of travel. If those things are going down, I think a lot of companies and businesses and other things might want to take note because that would seem to be a flashing red light. Yeah. And, and disrespectfully, I would correct you. Actually, travel is the one area we see going up. Um, <clears throat> so I've got a, a bunch of categories. Excuse me. Yeah. So travel is actually going to go up 11%, but there's a but to that. Um, so we're both uh, kind of a little right, I would say. Travel's going to go up, but the reason it's going to go up is two things. One is there's still a little bit of you know catch-up travel from the pandemic hangover because if anyone tried to travel last summer, you know what it was like with our airlines and, and airports and baggage. So people kind of gave up or deferred. But quite frankly, travel went up a ton too. If you booked a vacation, it's about 2x what it was a couple of years ago. So 
it's just that the cost of travel has gone up. So therefore, people that can and want to you know, allocate their money there are, are redirecting it there. But everything else, for the most part, is down. How many people pointed to um, finding deals as opposed to just buying gifts that they would normally just go and get? Hey, I see something that I like for whomever. I'm just going to grab that. How many, if any, or do we know the numbers who are saying, yeah, I'm specifically looking for bargains now? Yeah. So we asked that question. So 70 cents, a really high number, 77% of Canadians in our survey said we're going to be extremely deal hungry this season. Now, Canadians in general are very, uh, you know what I would say, really want good deals all the time. I guess that's how I could put it. But but this year is just going to be extreme, like I said, because of that compression on the wallet. So it's pretty high. One other thing, we, we were short on time. I wish we had a lot more, but um, a huge number, according to this, and based on what I'm reading here, are pointing to places like Amazon, online shopping. Some The number of people who say they're going to go and shop at stores also seems to be up a little bit. But that online shopping thing, my goodness, all those, we were just talking about small businesses a few minutes ago, all those small businesses, the local mom and pa shops, they have to be just quaking when they see numbers like that. Yeah, and you know it's funny in terms of getting ready. There's about 55% of the spend will still happen in stores, so it's you know it's a little more than half the chunk. And the thing about uh, about the the smaller businesses is, you know, it can be harder to compete on price sometimes with some of the bigger boxes. But there's certain things you can do to a small business that are easier than some of the big players. Things like make sure your inventory is in the right place at the right time when the customer walks in, it's available. Make sure you're you're ready to serve when the customer hits the hits the floor. So in terms of just being ready in the store, uh, can sometimes be easier if you're a small a smaller operation just because you have more more control and just fewer locations and people to worry about. Because it is pretty hard to staff stores these days, despite the economic views. It's still pretty hard to find people to work in retail stores. So it is going to be a bit of a mixed bag. And you're right, the online piece is tough. And one of the things we saw in our study quickly is that returns matter a lot. So again, if you're a smaller business and you want to try to find an edge, really focus on how you handle returns with customers. Because what we've seen in our study is that, you know, just about 30 or 40% of Canadians will actually switch brands or retailers if they don't like your return policy. Yeah. And I wonder, and, and I don't know the answer to this and we don't really have time to get into this, but I always thought that the one huge advantage that in-store purchases had is the the tactile feeling that you can touch the product and feel it and try it before you buy it. And I really wonder, and we got to go, I really wonder if that's changing because people have just become used to the online purchasing and maybe that's going away. That would be a huge loss if that advantage yeah. disappeared appeared. Yeah, uh, for sure. Really quickly. I would say it's, it's not changing too much. It's pretty consistent. You nailed it, especially on apparel, no doubt about it. Right. But certain things are more prone to online yeah. things that you have to try on where, uh, that's, absolutely that's, the, the touch feel and the service aspect are important. So it's still going to be important this holiday season to be ready in store. Marty Weintraub, a national retail leader at Deloitte Canada. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.